1: it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. For a look at the American presidency today and how it is still shaped by the lessons of the past, we are joined by four esteemed historians. Douglas Brinkley is a professor at Rice University. His latest book is Silent Spring Revolution. Lindsay Travinsky is a presidential historian and editor of Mourning the Presidents. John Meacham is a professor at Vanderbilt University. His latest book, And There Was Light. And we're also joined by historian Richard Norton Smith. His newest book, An Ordinary Man, comes out Tuesday. He is in Grand Rapids, Michigan, this morning. Richard, let's begin with you. And thank you all for being here this morning. The arraignment of former President Trump has brought questions of possible criminality close to the American presidency. How might the legacy of President Richard Nixon and Watergate and President Gerald Ford, who you write about, and his pardon inform us in understanding this moment?
2: Well, first of all, there's no doubt that there is some uh, hindsight, I would say, criticism uh, being directed at the Ford pardon as if it were a kind of of get-out-of-jail-free card for all future presidents. Um, I would say that, you know, we don't elect our presidents for their clairvoyance. We elect them, among other things, for their willingness and ability to make tough decisions. And uh, Gerald Ford, in August and September of 1974, confronted one of the toughest decisions to face any modern American president. He'd been thrust into this job to which he'd never aspired. And he discovered with every passing day, uh, the economy was uh, headed south. Uh, He had a NATO alliance that was fraying at the seams. We had not yet extricated ourselves from Vietnam. And he had to pick a vice president. And every day he was being confronted as he tried to come to terms with the problems of 200 million Americans with the problems of one American, Mr. Nixon's tapes, and his papers and his legal standing. By the way, Ford personally believed that if the legal uh, process played itself out, that in all likelihood, Nixon would be indicted and would be convicted, at least on a, an obstruction of justice charge. Yet he had to make a tough decision, which he realized could be politically suicidal, uh, of trying to not forgive Nixon, but forget Nixon. In other words, by pardoning Nixon to, to change the subject to refocus the nation's energies and attention on all of those problems that I mentioned and more and um, and let history, in effect, pass judgment on Nixon.
1: Lindsay, that phrase used by Richard, forget Nixon. Well, it's tough for President Biden to forget former President Trump. How unusual is it, as someone who's written a lot about presidential legacies, for a former president to re enter the political arena and be running for the White House while also facing criminal charges?
3: Well, we've used the word unprecedented a lot in the last eight years, so it has lost some of its meaning, but. It really is an unprecedented situation. There's a reason so few presidents have come back to run for office. One, of course, by the Constitution, many have not legally been able to, but certainly no one has ever done so while under indictment. And so we are in fresh waters as the nation. And, you know, as historians, we're very cautious to use that unprecedented word, but we've never seen anything like this.
1: Doug, you have written extensively about former President Jimmy Carter, who is now in hospice care. Carter, when he ran for president in 1976, famously told the nation he would never tell a lie. Does character still matter for the American presidency?
4: I think it still matters, but it hasn't in the last cycle. Um, uh, Although one could argue that Joe Biden winning was a vote for character, over Donald Trump, who had had two impeachments, um, you know, um, under his um, leadership. You know, I'm reminded of listening to Richard talking about Gerald Ford's memoir. It's called A Time to Heal. And Jimmy Carter's is called Keeping Faith. There was this six-year window after Vietnam and Watergate that people just wanted uh, somebody in the White House that wasn't overly dramatic, that wasn't trying to turn over the apple cart. And that might be the role of Joe Biden in history. Um, You know, he speaks with the stutter. Nobody's called him particularly charismatic. But like Ford and Carter, he seems to have a, a steady hand in a very tumultuous era.
1: John, this week was turbulent, but the story of President Abraham Lincoln in your book is a reminder that turbulence is nothing new in America. And as we grapple with this whirlwind of news from Trump to two black lawmakers being expelled in your home state of Tennessee amid a debate over a tragic mass shooting there, what might we learn from Lincoln?
5: Well, I think we're where we were in the 1850s in many ways. Uh, We're not having arguments in the country at this hour. About the means of politics, right? It's, it's about the ends. It's a, a fundamentally a clash of visions about identity, power, and the viability of democracy. And we confronted that in, in the 1850s, and it was a struggle that ultimately, of course, had to be settled by the sword. And I hesitate to bring that up, as Lindsay was saying, you know, you, you get into precedented versus unprecedented. But I don't think we do ourselves any favors by pretending that somehow or another this is an ordinary uh, clash of political interests. Politics at its best is a mediation of interests to create solutions to given problems for a given period of time, right? I mean, that's a fairly, I think, a safe working definition of politics. That's not where we seem to be. Where we seem to be is People see, particularly on the right looking left, to this right looking center and left, you have people who believe that we are not neighbors, we're intrinsically rivals at best and enemies at worst. And if that's your daily orientation, then the mediation of differences becomes virtually impossible. And I think that democracy itself, in many ways, is still an open question. Mm -hmm. Lincoln said that uh, it is the last best hope of Earth, what American democracy can be. But it's a moral undertaking. If we don't value each other, then we can't live in a democracy with each other. And that covenant on this uh, sacred weekend is something that I think we should be thinking about.
1: And, John, what might it take to bring the country out of this crisis you spell out?
5: Yeah, I think—I really do believe this is a moral question. I think—and moral, I mean uh, how we see each other, how we are with each other. Uh, I think Doug is right. I think that, in many ways, the 2018 election, the 2020 election, the 2022 election suggested that just enough of us want the constitutional experiment to unfold. We want to believe in the Declaration of Independence as our articulation of the ideal. The Constitution, however imperfect, uh, becomes the means by which we do that. And we had an American president, uh, two years ago, who wanted to suspend the Constitution, terminate it, because he wasn't getting his way. And that's authoritarianism. And. The fact that many Republican voters in the country—and I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, I try to call them as I see them—but many Republicans either believe in that authoritarian impulse or tolerate it. And so what it's going to take, I think, quite bluntly—again, Lincoln said, all men act on incentive—is Republicans have to keep losing elections. And then perhaps they'll realize that the thing they seem to want, which is power, is available only if, in fact, they are part of an American experiment and not standing outside it, trying to break it apart.
1: Lindsay, when I was reading Richard's book about President Ford, you think about the shadow of Nixon hovering over Ford, the shadow of Trump perhaps hanging over the Biden presidency. How do you see that effect on the current president?
3: Well, I think one of the biggest effects of Trump's legacy and his presence still in American politics, and perhaps also the biggest challenge that President Biden is facing is he literally can't reach a portion of the American people. They won't hear him. They won't listen to him. They think that he is evil and does terrible things. And it's often not based on fact or news, but rather through the information silo that they are in. And Trump really dominates that information silo. And as long as we are in a place where we don't have some sort of common fact, where we see each other as enemies, as John said. I'm not sure how Biden reaches those people and starts to heal that divide. I think it's going to take a really long time for the intensity of Trump's shadow to start to fade.
1: And Doug, what about the idea of a president being able to forward change and to take on tough issues like climate change which and and the environment, which you've documented in your latest book, how presidents have to sometimes be at the fore of taking on some of those biggest global challenges. Is the presidency still able to do that sort of thing?
4: Not at the moment. You know, in in my book, Silent Spring Revolution, I talk about how in 1973, the Endangered Species Act, which saved California condor and the bald eagle and alligators, you know, it passed the Senate by 92 to nothing for something as progressive as the Endangered Species Act, you couldn't get 92 to nothing on any vote of today. So it was just a different time. What I worry about, in addition to all the things that John said, is the, you know, there are a lot of young people are wondering why, why isn't it who wins the presidency who gets the most votes in a democracy? Al Gore had more votes. Than George W. Bush, why wasn't Gore president? Hillary Clinton had more votes than Donald Trump. Why, why not president? And that that aspect of the electoral college game also creates, uh, particularly on the left, people wondering whether um, our democracy is as functional as it should be.
1: Richard, President Biden, meanwhile, is confronting multiple threats abroad, be it war in Ukraine or the debate over the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. President Ford, as you write, had to deal with the Soviet Union in the aftermath of Vietnam in a time of national division. So how do you see President Biden's challenge on that front?
2: Well, I have to tell you, step back. um, The key is perspective. All right. The risk is we're all tempted and particularly journalists. It's your job is to not only interpret, but to analyze and to assess, to pass judgment on a president while he's still in office, or even shortly after he leaves office. Uh, Gerald Ford in 1975 signed the Helsinki Accords, which uh, brought severe criticism from the right and the left. Um, and now, almost 50 years later, we have a completely different view. We see it as an important milestone on the road to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, And you could apply that to to any number of issues. Uh, So what Joe Biden is dealing with now can be seen in a contemporary lens. But the the one thing we know is that future historians will see it very differently. I mean, we we, we historians, you know, the voters are a jury. They only get to pass judgment once. But historians with every passing generation get to retry the evidence. Sometimes there's new evidence, more often we see the same evidence through perhaps a fresh set of eyes influenced by all the intervening events. And um, that was true of Ford, and I suspect it will be true of Joe Biden.
1: Lindsey, you've written up a lot in recent years about how America can't just turn its eye away from the world. Presidents now, whether it's President Biden or, of course, President Trump who stoked it, are dealing with the rise of nationalism in the United States, whether it's on foreign policy or on domestic policy. What does that mean for the future of the presidency and the country?
3: Well, it's going to be, I think, one of the biggest challenges, whether it's confronting President Biden or one of his successors. I'm really drawn by the moment that we see and the parallel that we see in Franklin D. Roosevelt's presidency, where actually the time, I think, when fascism was most appealing to Americans was in the 1930s, because people weren't sure then, as Doug was saying, sometimes they aren't sure now, that democracy could actually get the job done. And what FDR did so brilliantly was he reminded people people how important democracy is to their daily needs, to their goals, to their family, to their American way of life. And so I think that if President Biden and his successors can double down on the Democratic themes, can remind people that it's not just some big, high ideas, but it's actually essential to their way of life, that is going to be the best way to combat the dangerous trend of nationalism.
4: What is your thought on that, Doug? Well, you know, I'm thinking on international affairs front. I mean, today, um, you know, NATO is still our primary, you know, mechanism of support in the world. Biden in Finland just joined NATO. There is a bipartisan consensus on NATO in the Ukraine and that we've got to um, boot Russia out, but it's a thinning. Um, You know, there used to be foreign policy during the Cold War. Everybody was just, you know, Ronald Reagan wanted to raise the military budget during the Cold War, 7 percent, Carter 5 percent. But something like the Ukraine, where we are seeing some bipartisan support, could unravel Due to our domestic politics, so uh, many countries in the world right now are trying to figure out what is the United States. Who are who are they? We have to do business with with Biden, and then we're going to do a one eighty with Trump in uh, in nineteen months. So uh, I, I'm worried about it, and I'm worried about the the uh, President Putin and President Xi and their summit, and uh, the uh, signals we're getting from China is that they don't want to be as collaborative with us as we had hoped. So we're living in very perilous times, and. In that arena, presidents still have the power, uh, not Congress or the Supreme Court.
1: John, I'd like you to build on two of those words we just heard from Doug, perilous and unraveling. You have occasionally advised President Biden, who has frequently spoken on the threats to American democracy. President Lincoln also made democracy a key theme. But is the presidency still enough to hold it together? What else matters in sustaining a healthy democracy?
5: We all matter. It's we the people. We are all biographers of presidents, because presidents are fascinating uh, and important and consequential. But this is a big, broad, disputatious, diverse country. And we're living through an extraordinary stress test of what citizenship means. I would say Richard's great description of what historians do, I think, is what citizens have to do. We are being called on to have that perspective, to see that perhaps in the give and take of American life, who who wants to give? It's a hell of a lot more fun to take. We've been doing this since the Hebrew Bible, since Genesis. We've been taking. The point of the country is that you give in order to be able to take in a rational way. Right? I mean, that's the entire structure of the Constitution, It is to limit our appetites and our ambitions, because our appetites and our ambitions are perennial and innate. And so what America requires of all of us is a higher level of understanding of reality itself. I extend a hand to you in the morning so that you are more likely to extend a hand to me in the afternoon. That is what a democratic covenant is about. And so the president matters enormously, of course, but you know, every American president uh, Lincoln, uh, we've talked about Lincoln, we talked about FDR, we've talked about President Ford it's about presidents can manage and marshal opinion, but they can't just manufacture it out of thin air. The elements have to be there, and we're the elements. And so I I think what everybody has to do is take a deep breath, assess where the country is headed, where are we now, and say, you know what? We believe that as imperfect as our past has been, that declaration, that constitution has managed to get us pretty far down the road. And those should be preserved and amended as, as necessity dictates. But I, I think this is up to all of us. I think this is a, an hour where citizenship and personal responsibility and the capacity to defer immediate gratification in a partisan sense matters.
1: Richard, any response to that?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, John, of course, is absolutely right. But it also requires that politicians, uh, you know, professional practitioners of democracy, in effect, play by a rule book. Um, And they're willing to lose. They're willing to lose for principle, as Ford demonstrated when he pardoned Nixon. Uh, but they're also willing to lose at the ballot box. The morning after the 76th election, people forget how close that race was, 9,000 votes if they changed hands in two states, Ford would have had an electoral college majority. And the Oval Office, as you can imagine, was full of people uh, shedding tears and offering condolences and suggesting that perhaps they should contest the results. And Ford said to one such visitor, I have to give him the White House in better shape than I found it. And that, in a sense, not only sums up Ford's presidency, perhaps Ford's legacy, but I think it goes to the heart of what makes for a successful democracy.
1: So John's book on Lincoln is called And There Was Light, and there always is, at least in a week when many Americans are in the holiday spirit. So in the final minutes here, in that spirit, I'd like each of you to offer a brief reflection on the presidency and faith. Lindsay, begin with you.
3: So, I was thinking about this question and I I was I was thinking about the two presidents, Adams, and they were men of deep faith. They came from the Congregationalist tradition, came from pretty puritanical backgrounds and a pretty homogeneous sort of uh, religious community, but they had traveled across the world and they had met men of faith and, and a lot of men of no faith from different walks of life. And so they were distrustful of organized religion, but they held Faith and the concept of a providence so closely in their hearts, and they provide support in moments of crisis, encouragement in moments of doubt, and a deep sense of a future and a, a providential destiny for both themselves and for the nation which I think is so essential, especially when they were trying to create something new. But that that sense of destiny for the nation is one that even if we don't necessarily share the conviction of the faith, I think that the destiny for the nation is really important.
4: Doug? Well, you know, we use the word narcissism a lot, and it's applied to Donald Trump often, and that's one of the reasons I worry about him. He seems to have no empathy. Um, I find it's very important for commanders-in-chief to also be grief counselors-in-chief, to have a real empathy. And I think of what Ronald Reagan, when he was shot, and in his diaries that I edited, he he wrote, I'm looking at the ceiling of George Washington Hospital, and now I know God is in me, and I have to get rid of nuclear weapons or you look at John F. Kennedy uh, and his Catholicism kicking in after the Cuban Missile Crisis when he used Norman Cousins as a secret envoy to go to the Pope and Khrushchev and say, we've got to stop testing nuclear weapons, and was able to procure an atmospheric band and an underwater ban on deploying nuclear weapons. Jimmy Carter, who we were talking about, put his faith into his presidency in very profound and important ways. So I think whatever your religion in does, Doesn't matter, but it's that you believe in a creator, you believe in a higher calling. FDR, during World War II, his messages always would talk about God because he thought that'd be a way to get to the American people and say that we're all serving one entity. And when our astronauts went to the moon, I've interviewed them, and they all saw Earth as one kind of pulsing biological uh, organism. And for them, it was a spiritual. Rendering. So, making sure that we keep the spiritual aspect of the presidency alive uh, is very important at a time right now when it seems to be living in the gutter.
2: Richard? Uh, As a boy, uh, Ford had drilled into his head uh, the verse from Proverbs, um, chapter 3, lines 5 and 6 Trust in the Lord with all your heart uh, and lean not unto your own understandings. Well, he prayed it in times of trouble. Uh, for example, as an adolescent, uh, out of the boo he uh, encountered his birth father, a man he he barely knew to exist. Or in World War II, uh, in the middle of a typhoon in the Pacific when he was very nearly washed overboard. But uh, I think most fervently, the night of August 1st, 1974, that was the day Al Haig told him that unless there was uh, some miracle, he would be president within a matter of days. And that evening he clasped hands with Mrs. Ford and they prayed and they repeated the familiar words from Proverbs, which, by the way, he used to begin his quasi-inaugural address. What all that means is he had a moral grounding. And ironically, uh, perhaps not ironically, it was that moral grounding that years later, I think, would facilitate a very f- close if unlikely, friendship that Gerald Ford developed with Jimmy Carter, uh, notwithstanding uh, a very spirited race that ran against each other. Again, testimony to the strengths of democracy if you begin with a base of individual character. John?
5: Power divorced from conscience is fatal to American democracy. And I don't care where it comes from. if an American president, and I would add an American citizen, is without any point of reference beyond their own immediate self-interest, then America does not work. And we will plunge back into uh, what Hobbes described as a state of war of all against all. And I think that the best way to think about this is to cite the words of someone who was not president, but is arguably one of the most important Americans who ever lived, Frederick Douglass, who said, I do not despair of this country. The fiat of the almighty, let there be light, has not yet spent its force, has not yet spent its force. But it's up to all of us to make sure that light continues to be shed.
0: Thank you all so much. We'll be right back. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music.